As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Uh, As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. So, uh... This week, we are tackling the controversial and confusing topic of surveillance capitalism. Um, That's a phrase some of our listeners might have heard before. Some of them will have never heard it before. And I suspect most of them might not be entirely clear on what it means. Um, Before we get started on this roller coaster, do you want to try and give us a kind of pithy, pithy one sentence definition of what we're on earth we're talking about when we talk about surveillance capitalism? Well, I'll try. I mean, it is one of those extraordinarily complex and often confusing ideas. But I think I think at the heart of it, it's, it's a really good name because it's those two things. It's surveillance. It's a new kind of making, a new way of making money, which is all about the surveillance of, of billions of pieces of data, if not trillions of pieces of data, about billions of human beings. And then basically using that both to be, predict how people are going to behave and to manipulate how they're going to be, to actually change how they're going to behave. And it's all about making money. And it's basically a few, a small number of people making obscene amounts of money um, about from this this technology. I mean, Google is was the the font the font of this uh, started it all. And uh, I think you had some figures about how much they'd made, didn't you? Um, Yes, it's it's astonishing. Um, I was just reading something before. Um, uh, In 2020, I'm sure it's grew even more since then, particularly with the pandemic. um, Google, which we think of as a company, which is fundamentally about, you know, it's a search engine and it's an email provider and they make kind of software that you might use on, on your work computer or, you know, a calendar app on your phone. But what they really are, they're an advertising company. In, in 2020, Google made $147 billion in advertising, $147 billion in advertising. And it's that money, you know, adverts primarily placed into your search results, um, which funds all their other activity, you know, which which is why they make, you know, phones and smart doorbells and, you know, maybe one day driverless cars, it's all uh, a result of them being effectively an enormous money-making machine just by selling adverts online. And what's really interesting to me is that if you go back into the history of Google and uh, of other Silicon Valley pioneers, they come out of a very different kind of mindset. I mean, um, it was very much the hippie era 
and um, and its and its consequences. The the and there was a great deal of sort of idealism about making a new world with technology, and it was going to be a new world where everything was going to be open, free, uh, and and there was this idea that we we're going to remove all the shackles. We're going to make everything available. Everything's free. Hmm. And it comes. Um... As you say, it's this really fascinating kind of melange of of that kind of um, idealistic kind of post nineteen sixties uh, hippieish counterculture, and then it gets somehow bolted onto what you might even call kind of hyper laissez faire capitalism. You know, unregulation. Uh, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it it makes you a profit, um, uh, and it kind of starts to 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 merge into this. This this almost a system um, with with almost unintended consequences. You know, when you look back at the start of Google, it's it's these two kind of long haired, um, kind of slightly nerdy computer science engineers in the mid nineteen nineties. You had this idea of a really clean minimalist search engine, uh, which would just give people the best results first. Um, and you know, I think their early slogan was you know don't be evil or something kind of like kind of charmingly naive and childish like that, and and. And over time, they realize, well, we just put an advert right at the top of your of your search list. It um, that makes us a bit of money, and then they realize, actually, hang on, we can make a lot more money by putting another advert in there, and then maybe we could start checking how people click on the adverts and how long they click and what kind of people are clicking on that. And it just kind of ratchets on step by step. Before and now, you see the Google today. You know, one of the most profitable, powerful companies in the world. It's hard to kind of trace it back to those kind of utopian. Um, underpinnings. Yeah, it is, and it's interesting reading those early the, about the early years. The problem that everybody had was what they called monetization. How how do I? I've got this wonderful technology. It's absolutely amazing, um, and and we can give people really good search. You know, because before Google, search was very very kludgy and and often you know just very unhelpful, and and so the technology, the way that Google worked, it was giving much better search results but it was called costing money you need massive computer servers to do this and computer coders and all the rest how on earth are we going to make money how are we going to fund this and it, it sounds like initially they were really very resistant to this advertising model because they thought once we're advertising people won't trust us people will will think oh this is all you know the search has been corrupted by money uh, but eventually I th- they they realised the, the the extraordinary earning potential and and you know and the rest is history, and um, but but it then feeds on itself because as the venture capitalists come in and put large sums of money into Google, they are demanding massive returns, and so everything then becomes orientated towards uh, increasing and and I think. A vital factor of this was the the discovery of how to manipulate people, how to hook them in, and how to manipulate their behaviour. Yeah, I mean, you might people probably heard of the phrase, you know, if it's free, you are the product, and that's really at the heart of how big tech, big data, surveillance, capitalism works, which is that people are enticed in to use ostensibly free products, whether that's Google search or Instagram or a Facebook account. Um, because, uh, and then the question is, if it's free, how does Facebook, Google make money? And what people 
kind of made me vaguely aware and aren't necessarily clear on is that they're monetized by the companies harvesting data on them and then selling it to advertisers who then use that data to better target their adverts. So, you know, to carry on using the Google example, you know, Google at first probably just started selling, you know, you would you would Google a lawnmower and a lawnmower company out there would pay Google a certain amount of money to put links to their lawnmowers in the search results, you know, which is, you know, reasonable. You can assume that someone typing in lawnmower is looking for lawnmowers. But over time, Google starts to collect more and more data about you. It says, well, what kind of computer are you using to search lawnmower? What time of day is it? Whereabouts in the world are you? What have you searched just before? What are you about to search just after? What did you do yesterday? And agglomerates this huge quantity of data that they can then make incredibly specific profiles. And then they go to the lawnmower company and say, we, would you like to sell your lawnmower adverts, not just to anyone looking for lawnmowers, but to you know men in the UK between the ages of 28 and 35 who have you know earn at least 30,000 pounds a year uh, you know, and and they can narrow it down to these incredibly thin salami slices of the population, and then f- find that that is in in intensely more more lucrative and profitable both for them because they can sell the adverts for more, but also for the lawnmower companies who get to put their product in the front of people very specific slices of the population. It's, it's not only that, but then the brilliance of Google was not only have we got your search results, but we've got what you've been, uh, we can see on Gmail, what you've been sending off emails about. And because you've been using Google Maps, we can see where you've been traveling and mm-hmm. what, what you've done and and so on and so on. And we can aggregate all this data, uh, yeah. which gives us, and if you've got an Android phone, well, actually Google did the operating yeah. system. So we've got taps into that and we know what you're doing with your Android phone and so on and so on. So it, it, it's an incredibly powerful, a very sophisticated model, and, and incredibly successful. And of course, it's it's in, it is absolutely wonderful. What what it has given us is is mind blowing. The idea that all of this is apparently free, that we have this amazing uh, technology and and software, we can do a search about anything, which would previously, you know, cost uh, an enormous amount of money, and it's utterly free. Um, I mean, when you were my age and you wanted to find something out, you had to go to a literal library and ask a human librarian, you know, I want to find out what's the population of Azerbaijan. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, let's go and let's go and dig out the latest version of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's it's absolutely right. You know, and I would spend a day, you would spend a a day. day to go into the library and... I mean, you had to do most of the searching yourself, you know, and I spent hours going along dusty um, shelves, you know, trying to find a particular journal article or a newspaper article, you know, with microfiche, <clears throat> a kind of uh, miniaturized photography or going through with scanners to try and find a newspaper article. And it took hours and hours. On the other hand, there was the amazing thrill when you, you actually find, you know, I can't believe it. After two hours, I've found this amazing article and it's really wonderful. You know? Whereas <laughs> I just opened a new tab on my Google Chrome browser, typed in population Azerbaijan, and in 0.69 seconds, it came back to tell me it's 10.14 million people, which is, I, is quicker, faster, simpler, is not quite as romantic. that's absolutely right but it has on the surface of it you're right it's given us an incredible that's an incredible service and and i take it for granted because i've grown up with this you know google has been the kind of dominant search product for my entire life um it's just 
you know, it's almost second nature and it's extension on my hand. It's now the phone in my pocket. If I ever have a factual question, I just, I can think of it and just tap it in and get the answer. And many people will say, okay, they're harvesting my data. They're, they're, they're gathering all this information points about my life, but it's a pretty good deal because I get all this incredible products in, in reverse. My life has been immeasurably improved by free access to Google products. Is why should we care about surveillance capitalism? If that's, if that's the exchange, that seems like a pretty good deal. Well, it's basically about advertising, isn't it? Once, once you, um, this is, of course, advertising predates um, massively all this. It goes back, you know, to the 18th century, I should think, and and, and so on. Um, but it's once you have a, an entire economy which is based on advertising, it really has unintended consequences, doesn't it? And I, I'd be really interested in your perspective as a journalist about how advertising and digital advertising has changed the nature of journalism. Mm. Yeah, it's something that I spend quite a lot of time thinking and reading about because for obvious reasons. Um, what is interesting is what what I've kind of read and discovered is that historically the kind of news industry has actually always been funded by adverts. You know, the very first, um, you know, the mass market newspapers, which kind of arose in the later 1800s, um, they were sold deliberately quite cheap. So they were affordable to the kind of everyday working man, maybe a, a halfpenny or something to buy the paper. Um, and uh, that's where they built up huge circulations of maybe mi many millions of people each day were buying these papers. Um, and then they would be crammed full of adverts. And it was those companies, you know, your classic Victorian companies selling, you know, Dr. So-and-so's magical elixir and whatever else that actually funded the, the 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 vast number of journalists and printers and all that stuff to run it and that model worked pretty well it meant that you know everyone got what they wanted the the news was very cheap and accessible and it worked very well for about a hundred years or so um and then the advent of digital um advertising has had these vast unintended consequences and at first everyone moved onto the internet and just started giving away their news for free you know all the these um, broadsheet tabloid newspapers, uh, the BBC, they all set up internet sites in the 90s and early noughties. And just because that was the the ethic, like we said, of, of the internet at the time was, well, we wouldn't pay to use the internet. They were like, well, we'll just put our news on the internet for free. Um, and at first, that was a kind of very niche thing. It didn't matter because they were still selling lots and lots of papers. But then over time, people stopped buying newspapers, in part because they could access the same content online for free. And the thought was fine. Well, we'll just we'll just start putting on online adverts on those on those um, news websites. But but the distinction there is that because we can gather so much data, you know, in the old days, you would say to a you know an old firm, just give us X amount of money, and we'll put a half page advert on page seventeen of the newspaper, and that'll cost this much. And they just had to hope that people flicking through would read their advert and say, and a certain number of those um, people buying the paper would then go on to buy the product. And that's why advertising works. But with the online, we can track exactly how many people have seen the advert, who is clicking on it, how successful it was in terms of generating revenue. Um, and A, they quickly found out that most advertising doesn't really work very well. Um, but also it meant that there was huge incentives now for for the the newspapers to juice up their numbers because they could only sell um, they could only justify what they were charging the advertisers if they could say and here's our you know accredited number of hits that that the, each right. page got. So there's this big pressure to increase your 
Um, it, it's now a, an incredibly competitive game. We're all fighting for eyeballs, as they say, yeah. and for clicks. And and so what's the implications of that? The implications for that is that it basically creates these kind of perverse incentives, whereas before you would say, I spend my money and my news resource, I tell my journalist to cover what I think is most newsworthy because we're creating a single daily product. Uh, whereas now we're really creating thousands of individual articles which most people just click on and leave. They don't browse the whole website. So each article needs to be able to justify its existence. And what you find is that, you know, deeply reported three-month kind of investigative pieces of thousands of words don't get the same number of hits as something you can bang out in 10 minutes saying, what is this celebrity wearing today? Here's 14,000 pictures. <laughs> and because you get more money depending on more hits, you're inevitably, the centre of gravity of the paper is drawn, as much as the journalists individually might not like this, towards his ex-celebrity wearing not very many clothes <laughs> because that's incredibly cheap to produce and grit gets loads of hits and eyeballs whereas you're you know sending your foreign correspondent to south sudan to cover the civil war is incredibly expensive and doesn't give more eyeballs and that's why you get the kind of people chasing trying to get their content to go viral uh, that's why you have you know, newspapers being reduced to this kind of clickbait stuff where it's kind of tricking you with misleading headlines. Or yeah, and I mean, that that was something which I found really quite shocking uh, going on to some of these uh, websites, you know, several very well-known name uh, newspaper websites. You go into that, you go into them and you're just confronted with this amazing clickbait adverts. I mean, and you think this, the impression it's giving of of something that that is cheap that is unreliable that is just out to to trap you um it, it is really I, i'm amazed that these that papers will will stand for that and, and and see their their image being being trashed by this clickbait yeah i mean i in many ways i agree it's really quite depressing to see kind of as you say kind of news brands that ostensibly stood for kind of quality and and that, and they are to this point. There are some papers which are basically unreadable because they have, you know, ad videos that slide in in front of your eyes <laughs> and what track you as you scroll down the screen. And they're they're in. There's this arms race, you know, because we quickly discovered just putting static banner ads at the top, people just glaze over them. They, you know, so the price of those plummeted because they weren't working. So then we started having videos, and then and then the browsers started cancelling auto playing videos. And there's this kind of arms race where each side, the advertisers and the consumer, is trying to avoid, and then the adverts get more and more intrusive. And, and ultimately, the other angle of this is that when it, particularly when it comes to local news, local papers obviously relied on local businesses to advertise in them. But local businesses very quickly discovered you get loads more bang for your buck by advertising on Google or on Facebook and selling directly there because Google and Facebook can find people who live in your in your particular village who want that particular kind of lawnmower or whatever. And so all the advertising revenue moved away from local newspapers to 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 Google uh, and to Facebook, and basically eviscerated the business model of local news. And so it's slightly been hidden because, um, you know, the national papers that we all understand, you know, your, your big name newspapers are still going strong online. But uh, across the Western world, particularly in the UK and the US, there's been a, an absolute devastation. You know, the newspapers that might have once, you know, I started my career at a local newspaper, which today has maybe two or three journalists and as recently as 15 years ago would have had eight or nine you know so mm, we're talking 75 percent loss in 
in, and they're trying to produce the same number of pages, if not more, while also running a website, while also running a social media channels. You know, they're doing 10 times the work with with 20 percent of the resources, but it produces a worse product. And you get stuck in this death spiral because people are like, why would I buy this local rag, which is full of clickbait and viral nonsense that they've scraped off the Internet, it doesn't even cover our local news anymore. And then it gets you just stuck in the cycle mm. where, you know, more, fewer people read it. There's even less revenue from advertising and, and it becomes a death spiral. And so journalism sounds like almost a doomed profession. Well, certainly local journalism. I mean, I mean, do you feel yeah. that? Do you, do you feel? Um, I think journalism. Yes, I think local journalism is is largely a doomed profession. I don't think it will cease to exist entirely. But I think the kind of the local journalism that you grew up with, where every town had a local newspaper, maybe two, that was staffed by professional trained journalists who would you know go to your council meetings and go to the courts and follow up on what's going on in local businesses and write about that that won't really exist in any meaningful sense certainly in the next 20 years you're listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable So again, it's interesting, isn't it? It's unintended consequences. Something that starts off uh, just aiming to make profit uh, for for Google and for these other internet uh, pr- providers uh, has all kinds of devastation. I mean, you could tell a similar story about bookstores, couldn't you? And yeah. um, you know, there are, there are many other areas of retail that have just been completely devastated by this unanticipated consequences. Mm. Um, the I think. One of the things I'm really worried about is this addictive ability. Mm. This um, and I'm really interested in the science of this because it's not an accident that smartphones are incredibly addictive. I mean, you know, you try and remove a smartphone from a 15 year old, and uh, they sim- younger people find it simply inconceivable not to be living with their smartphone. And I think we all do. I mean, it is a very, very sticky product is what they call it. And and none of this is by accident. This is, <clears throat> this is by engineering. And it's interesting because a lot of this goes back to very early work, which I learned when I was studying psychology as part of my medical training way back in the 1970s. And at the time, there was a lot of interest. And I read all these papers about... Uh, what was called behaviorism, animal behaviorism. And in particular, there was a guy called B.F. Skinner, who was the the leading proponent. And, and it was Skinner who had worked out ways of conditioning pigeons and rats in boxes uh, to press buttons. And uh, there was a whole um, science of, of behavior modification. Um, and one of the experiments I remember is that what you do is you put a pigeon in a box and there's, there happens to be a lever situated in the box and every time the lever is pressed, it produces a little food pellet. But And the pigeon just uh, goes around randomly fluttering and, and exploring and trying to escape. And then by accident, it, it touches this um, lever and then a pellet appears. And then what Skinner did was he plotted how how pe- how the frequency 
uh, and and initially it only happened occasionally, and then gradually the pet the pigeon works out that by pecking on this particular area, he can make the food pellets better. And then Skinner did all kinds of different experiments to see whether he could, you know, whether it mattered the shape of the the target if it was a, a different target, quite separate from where the pellet appeared. Um, but one of the things that he discovered was that if every time the pigeon pecked on the pellet, uh, pecked on the the target, the pellet appeared. Uh, the the pecking rose to a peak, a maximum, and then quite rapidly fell down. The pigeon got bored. But if he put in a variable so that most of the time when the pigeon pecked on the pellet, nothing appeared on the target, but just occasionally one at random appeared, what he discovered was that pigeons kept on pecking and pecking and pecking and pecking. And sometimes I think they would almost exhaust themselves uh, in in simply just pecking on the pellet. And and this this kind of science has been incorporated into the design of the internet and in particular into smartphones ways of of getting us to um to press on particular on pens and, and on apps and on, on and so on and it it is extraordinary to think this this quite sophisticated science but it it's all hidden it's all covert and that's what really concerns me. It's 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 almost like heroin. Uh, we've we've worked out a way of trapping people and getting them uh, into this addictive cycle. One of the fascinating ideas is that is that part of the way this works is through notifications. And so, what everybody tries to get us to switch on notifications. At the moment, I have notifications switched off. And the number of times that all the apps tell me, you know, just switch on notifications. You do, you, you appear to have notifications switched off, you know, just press here. And of course, the reason for that is that every time that little ping goes or that little vibration, it is a cue, a trigger for us to go and check. Oh, what was that? I wonder who's Facebooked me. I wonder who's, you know, I wonder what that news item is and so on. And, um, but their goal is to get what they call internal triggers. So those are external triggers, the notification is. But the goal is to get us the internal triggers. And the internal trigger is, you know what? I haven't checked my WhatsApp for at least an hour. I really need to go and check it. And Mm -hmm. so we are prompting ourselves. We are triggering ourselves. I need to go and check that website. I need to go and do that. It's brilliant. it is brilliant. Well, it's it's kind of sinisterly brilliant. And it really, because it what it very specifically does is it targets our emotions and our almost our cognitive biases and our insecurities and our anxieties. You know, you see this very clearly in, in social media platforms, particularly ones like Instagram based around vi- visual elements where the whole app is geared towards you snapping a picture, taking a picture of something and putting it on there for your followers, your friends to see. And then the whole point is that all what everyone does in response is they click like or they comment. You get a notification and it goes, bing, someone has paid you attention. Someone has complimented you. Someone has said, great picture or like that or, you know, and, and that gives you a little shot of dopamine and then it feeds and then you go away. And then after an hour, you're like, I wonder if anyone else has, has, has liked that. And it just scratches that little itch that we all have inside ourselves, which is a long, a desire to be loved, a desire to be noticed, a desire to be valued and wanted. And then you're like, well, I, I haven't, I, you know, I posted that last picture a couple of hours ago and there was a stream of likes, but now it's kind of fizzled out. People just swiped down. I probably should post something else. And you get sucked into posting and posting and posting. And then you get this feedback loop of likes and comments, a little hit of dopamine in your brain, a ping on your phone, a vibration in your pocket. 
and 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 they found as, as you say this basically model of of you know hook people in with a free product get them to generate the content for yourself give them positive reinforcement and then they go back and we are effectively pigeons tapping at levers but it's just, but instead of lapping at levers getting a pellet we're posting stuff online and receiving hearts and likes and stars and uh, and pings and vibrations um and it's, it's kind of instrumentalizing the kind of brokenness of the human brain <laughs> it is and and our vulnerability and weaknesses as as flawed and and broken human beings and i and i think you know we're coming to the end of this episode i just want to to flag up this extraordinary asymmetry of power so uh, you know we've talked about the self-feeding way that this works in 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 these big silicon companies before but because they're making so much money, they're, they're able to buy up the best talent, the best coders, the best equipment, the best computers, uh, the best ideas. And also they pay enormous lobbying. I mean, Google and the Silicon Valley companies are apparently have the biggest lobbying budgets in Washington. And they are constantly lobbying politicians to try and protect their own interests. And so... On the one hand, you've got this this brilliant uh, science, engineering, power. And on the other hand, you've got the poor consumer, you know, with their smartphone trying to decide whether to click or not on this very alluring button. And it, it, it does seem an extraordinary asymmetry there. And, and, and it does seem that part of the, the way forward must be to try and balance the power, to, to say, OK, you're trying to to make me click on this button i want to know some more information why what what how are you doing this and and what's behind it and is this actually something that's going to be for my good hmm. and it's interesting because when you talk about asymmetry of power there's a part of me that kind of instinctively recoils and says well hang on i'm a autonomous educated adult person you know, I, i'm not that easily manipulated you know i'm not i'm not having this little app on my phone i'm not a puppet dancing to its tune but then you start to read about, you know, the social media companies have done quite a lot of research into how they can manipulate behavior through the, their apps and their device and their products. And it is terrifying how effective, you know, Facebook did one about voter turnout a few years ago, where in certain parts of the state, so there was an election season and they experimented with giving different people in different towns, different notifications about go and vote, don't go and vote. What size was the picture? You know, what voting, how how would they promote kind of political content in their feed? And then they measured turnout in different towns and they were literally able to reduce or boost voter turnout and effectively the result of democratic elections simply by tweaking settings in how people's Facebook feeds worked. And no one is obviously consciously realizing that, but in aggregate, they're literally able to steer the future of that country on these local elections based on 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 you know, minute changes in, in your Facebook feed, which is quite a sobering and terrifying thought. It certainly is. And when, you know, there's this concern about democracy around the world being under threat, um, it's ironic, isn't it, that there's this hidden threat through technology. And of course, you know, governments around the world and political agents and all the rest are well aware of the potential that these this has. And so, I mean... <laughs> The, the larger philosophical question is, is it possible for democracy to survive um, if, 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 in the end, our behaviour is so open to manipulation by these covert forces? Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what Lita Sons is going to tackle in our next episode, is looking at 
the kind of impact of this surveillance capitalist system that we've unintentionally created and find ourselves locked into? What is it doing to us as human beings, to our mental health, to our kind of social cohesion? But also, what is it doing to us as societies? You know, how are governments, uh, big governments picking up on this? As you mentioned, how is it affecting democracy? Um, and then maybe well, I think we're going to look at some kind of Christian responses to to what what it, uh, should we resist this? Um, are we complicit? You know, is there a distinctively authentically Christian response to to surveillance capitalism? Um, but that will have to wait till next week. Um, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Um, there was uh, lots to 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 read and find on on John's website. That's johnwyatt.com. Uh, newly refreshed, relaunched, given a lick of paint. So if you don't don't check check, check that out, we'll talk about that. I'm sure. And in no the clickbait, absolutely. No, no clickbait. Bait. Yeah, <laughs> promise, <laughs> promise. Um, uh, otherwise, you can always get in touch with us by emailing molad m o l a d at premier.org.uk, um, and we'll speak to you again uh, next Wednesday. Bye bye. Hello, Tim here. Just before we go, I wanted to let you know we're planning a special episode in the next month or so to mark the one-year anniversary of relaunching Matters of Life and Death as part of the premier Unbelievable Network. We're going to be dedicating an episode, or maybe even two, to answering questions from you, our listeners. They can be on any topic, perhaps something you've heard us talk about over the last year that you'd like to go deeper into, or maybe instead there's a new development in the news or science that you'd be interested to hear us chat about. We can't promise to answer every question we get, but we're definitely going to try to squeeze in as many as possible into this special omnibus episode. Nothing's out of bounds, so do get in touch now by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premiere.org.uk. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.